this morning, we are going to be starting uh, another book in our ongoing series, Majoring in the Minors, a look through the Minor Prophets, um, because we are going through the Minor Prophets because their message, as minor as it may be, tells us that God is still speaking. And so this morning, we're opening up to the book of Amos, and Amos comes after the book of Joel. And so if you flip your Bible past the Psalms into Isaiah, past all the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations, you'll find yourself landing in the uh, minor prophets, and then you just turn to Amos. And while y'all are turning there, let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And Father, our desire is to go into your word and have you speak to us this morning, Lord. We believe that this is your word. And Father, we believe that it is necessary for us even today. It continues to be relevant. It continues to be true. Speak to us from it this morning, Lord, and help us to continue to walk with you. Lead us by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. And if I had to come up with a minor theme for the book of Amos, it would be walking with God. And um, the prophet Amos gives out messages to different um, nations and to Judah and to Israel and speaking with them about how they are not walking with God, walking like God. And um, if you go to Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, The words of Amos, who is one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the summit of, Car of Carmel withers. What we have here is the book <clears throat> of Amos that concerns the prophecies of the man that has the same name. We see that in verse 1, it's identified as the words of Amos. Now, interesting thing is Amos was not a prophet of the school of prophets. He didn't go to learn how to be a prophet. He didn't study the scriptures to know um, the word of God and to be able to prophesy in accordance with that. Amos was one, as it says there, one of the sheep breeders of Tekoa. Literally, he raised sheep. He was a shepherd. We also will find out in this book that he's a cattleman and he's a dresser of fig trees, meaning he takes care of fig trees. He, he runs an orchard. Or orchard. I'm like <laughs> having trouble pronunciating. Now, the village of Tekoa is a village 10 miles south of Jerusalem in the territory of Judah. It's actually near the land of Hebron. It's interesting because being from the land of Judah, he is a prophet sent to the northern kingdom. And he was called there during the 8th century BC, during the reigns of King Uzziah, if he was the king in, in uh, Judah, and Jeroboam in the northern kingdom of Israel. But this is Jeroboam II. So he's the, he's the wicked one, the one who set up all the false worship sites. Amos is a contemporary to the prophet Hosea, the prophet Isaiah, and the prophet Micah. We find him here, he's the third of the minor prophets, but if you were looking at it chronologically, he's the first. 
of the writing prophets. The name Amos means burden bearer. And that's fitting because most of his prophecies and messages that we're going to cover in this book, um, they center around the approaching judgment on not only the surrounding nations, but also judgment on Judah and Israel itself. Truly, he is a man bearing the burden for all the nations. Amos is structured easily. It divides into three major sections. We're going to cover the first section this morning. That's the introduction, which covers chapters one and two. Then you have um, what I would call sermons or messages, and that's chapters three through six. And then you have the visions covering chapters seven through nine. Amos is the prophet of righteousness of Old Testament. His book reveals the principle that right religion requires right behavior. True religion is not observing all the right feasts, making the correct offerings, worshiping in the sanctuary, but what he teaches is that authentic religion and worship results in changed behavior, seeking God's will, loving others, and obeying God's word. And this is brought out by what I consider to be the theme verse for the book of Amos. In Amos 3.3, this verse is usually used at, in, in weddings and other things like that, but it brings out this truth. Can two walk together without agreeing to meet? If you are going on a walk together, you can only walk together if you're going already in the same direction. And Amos's message is God is walking this way, leading this way, but you as his people are intent on going your own direction. Walking with God requires walking by his direction. And so we open up the first two chapters of Amos, and the title for the message this morning is The Lord Roars. A lion's roar is considered one of the most terrifying sounds in the animal kingdom, especially if you're in the African savannas and you are walking around and you happen to hear that sound as you are on foot on the ground, no protection around you. Um, when you hear that sound, it may indicate that it is time to hightail it out of there. The lion's roar can be as loud as 114 decibels which can rival some rock concerts. But why do lions roar? You see, lions are a communicative species, and they are very social. So a lion uses its roar for many things. A lion's roar can scare off intruders. It warns of other, uh, uh, another predator being around. Sometimes the lions roar to show off. It's very common during the mating season that they just roar for no reason but they also roar to warn of imminent danger. And a lion's roar is both terrifying and paralyzing for those within its range. They are suddenly filled with fear and terror. And so Amos likens the voice of God to that of a roar with the lion in mind. God's message was given to share, and it will be the roar of the lion of Judah and it would have the same similar paralyzing and withering effect on the people. God wanted to get the nation's attention, but they weren't listening. You ever, if, if you have kids, you know this. Sometimes they don't listen until you go all crazy on them. When you try to be nice, they ignore you, they ignore you, they ignore you, and then you go crazy, and then they look at you like you're the crazy one. I'm not saying God is going crazy, but he will get our attention. And so... 
Amos 3.8, he says, a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who will not prophesy? God was speaking and thundering from Jerusalem. Hopefully that would alert them to the danger at hand of the direction they're walking. So pick up with me in Amos chapter 1, verse 3, and we're going to read all the way through the end of chapter 2. So if anything happens to me from that point on, at least you read God's word. So verse 3, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four, because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. Therefore, I'll send fire against Hazael's palace, and it will consume Ben-Hadad's citadels. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will cut off the ruler from the valley of Avon and the one who wields the scepter of Beth Eden. The people of Aram will be exiled to Ker, and the Lord has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza for three crimes, even four, because they exiled a whole community, handing them over to Edom. Therefore, I will send fire against the walls of Gaza, and it will consume its citadels. I will cut off the ruler from Eshdod and the one who wields the scepter from Ashkelon. I will also turn my hand against Ekron, and the remainder of the Philistines will perish. The Lord God has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre for three crimes, even four, because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom, broke a treaty of brotherhood. Therefore, I will send fire against the walls of Tyre and it will consume its citadels. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Edom for three crimes, even four, because he pursued his brother with the sword. He stifled his compassion. His anger tore at him continually and he harbored his rage incessantly. Therefore, I will send fire against Taman, and it will consume the citadels of Basra. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing the Ammonites for three crimes, even four, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. Therefore, I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah, and it will consume its citadels. There will be one shouting on the day of battle and a violent wind on the day of the storm. The king and his princes will go into exile together. The Lord has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes, even four, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Therefore, I will send fire against Moab, and it will consume the citadels of Kirioth. Moab will die with a tumult, with shouting, and the sound of the ram's horn. I will cut off the judge from the land and kill all its officials with him. The Lord has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah. For three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver, a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral, and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorite as Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars, and he was as sturdy as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And I brought you from the land of Egypt, 
and led you 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorites. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. You made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets to not prophesy. Look, I'm about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes one full of grain. Escape will fail the swift, the strong one will not maintain his strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, and the one who is swift of foot will not save himself. The one riding a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. And so we have three sections here of the Lord proclaiming judgment. He is literally roaring from the Mount of Jerusalem through the mouth of the prophet. Number one, his judgment is proclaimed against Gentile nations. The Lord's roar first goes out against seven surrounding nations of Israel. And in doing so, I can imagine as the prophet went out around in the land of Israel and Judah, and he's proclaiming his judgment against the seven Gentile nations, there's an approval, an agreement, and a cheering that is elicited from his audience amongst the Israelites. Yeah, you tell those heathens, good for nothing, hell kindling. We come across a repeated phrase, and it's repeated for all of the judgments. It says, I will not relent from punishing for three crimes, even four. It's an odd thing. It comes from a device that's used frequently in the Old Testament in which a number is followed by the next highest number in sequence. And what it does is the higher number is usually enumerated with more detail. So um, for three crimes, even four, and then it takes the four and it talks about those ones. And what we find is that Amos only cites the last of the crimes. He doesn't list out all the crimes. It's the last of the ones. The three crimes are perhaps the fullness of the crimes or the fullness of God's patience with those crimes. And the fourth would be indicative that it is overflowing. And so the, the statement that he's making is the Lord is going, will not relent from punishing for their overflowing crimes, their overflowing sin. The cause of judgment is its sins or its violations against the covenant. That word crimes in the original language is pesah, and it means rebellion against a divinely established and universally recognized agreement. I believe Damas has in mind their rebellion is against the universal covenant made with humanity at the time of Noah, because as he's speaking to the Gentile nations, they don't have the Mosaic covenant. They don't have the law, the Torah that they're supposed to follow. The Gentile nations are supposed to follow a different covenant that was made in Genesis 9-11. The Lord says, I will establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. That's God's part. The people's part is found in the next couple of verses, five through seven. He says, I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human if someone murders a fellow human. I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. But you be fruitful, multiply, spread out over the earth, and multiply in it. And so the covenant was made that they would do everything they could to multiply and spread out across the earth and no longer damage 
one another who's made in the image of God. And it's an everlasting covenant. This covenant was never done away with. We still see the signs of this covenant in the sky today. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all living creatures on earth. Permanent covenant. When you look outside after a rainstorm and that rainbow is in the air, that is the sign that God's covenant still stands. If you think of it as an archer's bow, which way is the bow pointed? It's pointed up. No longer is God's bow pointed at man. That is the covenant that was made. And so we get into the nations. The first nation that he calls out is Damascus. In verses 3 to 5, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four. They thrust Gilead with iron sledges. Therefore, I'll send fire against Hazael's palace, and it will consume Ben-Hadad's citadels. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will cut off the ruler from the valley of Avon and the one who wields the scepter from Beth Eden. The people of Aram will be exiled to Kerr. The Lord has spoken. Now, Damascus is the capital city of Aram. And so the land is, is, is Aram, modern-day Syria, if you wanted a place where they're at. They're guilty of threshing Gilead with iron sledges. Now, threshing is the separating of grain on wheat from the husks. And the sledge, it's a pair of rush, roughly shaped boards bent upward at the front with an iron stud, prongs, or knives. The idea is they're guilty of torturing. Perhaps prisoners, perhaps it's from a harsh conquest, they're guilty of treating people inhumanely. Aram's armies had raked across Gilead, slicing and crushing through it as though they were grain on the floor. The Israelite territory east of Jordan suffered greatly during these battles with the Arameans. And so in punishing Damascus, that's what the Lord says, I will bring fire. He's not talking about a literal fire. Fire is always a symbol of judgment. And so Amos is speaking in pictures here, and he's saying God's bringing judgment against him. He declared that he would smash the bar of the city gate breaking down the gate, effectively stripping the city of its defenses and saying that Aram will be consumed. The citadels will be consumed. When he talks about the one holding the scepter, he says, I will remove the king, I will remove the kingdom, I will remove everything. Then he moves on, he goes to Gaza. Verses six and seven, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza for three crimes, even four. They exiled a whole community, handing them over to Edom. Therefore, I will send fire against the walls of Gaza, and it will consume its citadels. I will cut off the ruler from Ashdod, the one who wields the scepter from Ashkelon. I will also turn my hand against Ekron, and the remainder of the Philistines will perish. The Lord God has spoken. Gaza represents the land of the Philistines. So the Philistines are under judgment. The Philistines are modern-day Palestine. We hear about the Gaza Strip always being in the news. And what you have here is four of the five cities that comprise the Philistine Pentapolis, they're mentioned here. You have Gaza, Ashad, Ashkelon, and Ekron. The fifth city would have been Gath. 
But at that point in time, Gath had already been in ruins, destroyed utterly. And Gath is famous for Goliath. That is where he was from. So the crimes of the Philistines was such that they captured whole entire communities in slave raids. They would go and they would raid an area and they would just capture people for the purpose of slave trade. They sold them for commercial profit. Defenseless people becoming mere objects. People that bear the image of God becoming mere objects, auctioned off to Edom. And so for this sin, the Lord says, they will be completely annihilated, buildings, kings, and people. Lord speaks to Tyre. Verses 9 and 10, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre for three crimes, even four, because they handed over an entire, a whole community of exiles to Edom and broke a treaty of brotherhood. Therefore, I will send fire against the walls of Tyre, and it will consume its citadels. Tyre, in that time, was the Phoenicians. Today, it's modern Lebanon. Tyre itself doesn't exist anymore. It was judged so harshly that Tyre and Sidon are, are wiped out. So they take their crime as they took a whole community of exiles, a community that had come to them, and they turned them over to Edom, breaking a treaty of brotherhood. Phoenicia city is more callous than Gaza have sold an entire community of captives to Edom in violation of a treaty. Tyre's punishment is similar to that described in verse 7. And here's how it went down. Alexander the Great would be the catalyst to overrunning this city in 322 B.C., Besieging it for seven months, 6,000 were slain outright, 2,000 were crucified, and 30,000 were sold as slaves. Tyre had sold Israelites to Edom as captives, and they themselves became captives. Which brings us to the land of Edom. Verse 11 and 12, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Edom for three crimes, even four, because he pursued his brother with the sword. He stifled his compassion. His anger tore at him continually, and he harbored his rage incessantly. Therefore, I will send fire against Taman, and it will consume the citadels of Basra. Now, Edom, the Edomites, this is modern-day Jordan, but Edom is the nation born of the brother of Jacob, known as Esau. And if you remember Esau's description, when Jacob had deceived and stolen his blessing, it says that he burned with rage continually, that he had this desire. He was always against his brother from that point on until many years later. But it plays out in the city of these two nations. And what was God's prophecy to their mother? She says, why does it feel so weird? I got this movement in my womb. And he says, you have two nations in your womb fighting and the older shall serve the younger. And so Edom, the nation from Esau, Jacob, Israel's brother, Edom pursued his brother with the sword, stifled compassion, anger tore at him, and he harbored his rage. The nation of Edom has always been particularly heinous towards Israel, towards the Israelites. Persistent hostility, no compassion, and the nation of Edom let their anger rage continually. And because of their uncontrolled, their unnatural anger, God would send fire on Taman and Basra, the largest southeastern city and fortress of Basra to the north, showing that the entire nation of Edom 
is under God's wrath. The Ammonites. Now, the Ammonites are interesting. I'll get to that in just a minute. Verse 13, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing the Ammonites for three crimes, even four, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. Therefore, I will send fire to the walls of Rabbah, and it will consume its citadels. There will be shouting on the day of battle and a violent wind on the day of the storm. Their king and his princes will go down into exile together. The Lord has spoken. Now, these next two nations that we're going to talk about, the Ammonites and the Moabites, these two nations came from a sinful act that happened against Abraham's nephew, Lot. If you remember, there was a point in time Lot had two daughters, and the daughters realized that they were in this land and there were no people around. They're like, how are we ever going to keep our father's line alive? And so they got their father drunk, and they both took turns each one night, and they had relations with their father, both becoming pregnant. The first one had Amnon. The second one had Moab. And that's where you get the Ammonites and the Moabites, two other nations that have always been a thorn in the side of Israel. So the Ammonites were particularly known for their atrocities against humans. And here's one of their atrocities pointed out right here, ripping open the pregnant women of Gilead. And it uses it very graphically here to describe the fact that they killed every single living person for no other goal than to expand its territories. In those times, ancient warfare was horrible, completely and utterly just obscene but they still had common decency when it came to women and children. The Ammonites ignored that. They used it as a method of terrorizing and decimating their enemy, not for self-preservation, but to extend their borders. And due to the heartlessness of their act, God said he would set fire to the walls of Amnon's capital city, Rabbah, and amid the flames, the dwellers of the city, what they would hear is war cries from their attackers. And a violent wind symbolizing God's awesome power would also be against the city. The enemy would conquer and take both king and princes to exile together. The Ammonites would be thoroughly judged. Moab. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes, even four, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Therefore, I will send fire against Moab, and it will consume the citadels of Kerioth. Moab will die in a tumult with shouting and the sound of the ram's horn. I will cut off the judge from the land and kill all of its officials with him. The Lord has spoken. As I said, Moab is another one born of the daughters of Lot. In ancient times, there was much importance placed on a dead man's body being placed peacefully at a family burial site so that he could be gathered to his father's. Robbing, disturbing, or desecrating a grave. It was an offense of the highest order. Tomb inscriptions utter many violent curses against anyone who commit such an outrage. This is where we get all our great movies from, you know, like The Curse of the Mummy and things like that. Um, it's this practice that do not disturb the dead. We have many laws today, even in our country, covering the desecration of bodies, the treatment of dead bodies. What happens with it? Like, you can't just do whatever you want with a dead body. There are charges, serious charges that come with that. And, and that also um, 
oversee and dictate how the burial is done. Moab, in a war with Edom, drove the enemy back, and as they drove the enemy back and they entered into their territory, they had the royal graves. And they opened up the royal graves and they burned the bones of Edom's king so thoroughly that the bones became white powdered chalk as lime or limestone. Not a crime against Israel, but a sin of rebellion nonetheless. It's an assault against the Lord's own image in people. And so God would militarily annihilate Moab. Kerioth would be consumed in fire and Moab would go down with the sound of trumpet blasts. And I'm sure as this was pronounced, Israelites are like, yeah, you go, God, you go get them, those terrible guys. And then Amos turns around and says, not so fast against Judah. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. So we see the same formula being applied against the nation of Judah, the people of God. Judah, like the nations of the Gentiles, piled sin upon sin against the covenant of God. The difference being the Gentiles rebelled against the everlasting covenant, the, the, the uh, general covenant that covered all of creation after the flood. Judah's sins were against the specific Mosaic covenant, the more personal one, the one that God made between them and him. Notice that the Lord says, Though they are my people, I will not relent from punishing Judah. He says, I will not relent from punishing Judah. Judah is his people, but he still will punish. Judgment comes to all. We need to remember that. And their judgment comes because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord. They've rejected his law. And they have not kept its statutes, its commands, its stipulations, or decrees. His agreement was uniquely made with them, and they rejected it. And what's worse, they rejected the truth, his truth, for the lies that their ancestors followed and have led them astray. And there's the truth. When you reject God's truth, you will be led astray, always. You cannot reject God's truth and still walk rightly. God's word brings truth. Jesus said as much when he was praying before the Father as he prayed over the church before he went to the cross. He said, Lord, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And the punishment for their faithlessness their punishment for rejecting the truth is the destruction of the nation. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar besieges the city of Jerusalem, slaughters the royal family, burns the temple, the palace, all the houses of the city, and deports the population to Babylon. The difference being they were God's people. 
And so we know that he allowed for them to return out of exile back to their land. But for right now, judgment's coming. And even at that point, Israel, the northern kingdom is like, yeah, you tell those guys. That's why we left them. They're terrible. And then Amos turns around and says, not so fast. Verse 6, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver, a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral in the house of their God. They drink wine obtained through fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorite as Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars, and he was as sturdy as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. I brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, do not prophesy. Look, I'm about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. Escape will fail the swift, the strong one will not maintain his strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The one who is swift of foot will not save himself. The one riding a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. Obviously by now, Israel knew it was their turn. The Lord is sovereign over the universe and he will hold all nations accountable for their rebellion against him. You cannot have a close relationship with God and get away with rebelling. Israel had broken their covenant against God. And God decided to bring it out that they did that despite the many gracious acts on his part. Israel is guilty of injustice, legal perversion, sexual sin, abuse of collateral, and idolatry. Callously, they sold into slavery the righteous and the needy. It says that they sold the, the, the righteous for silver. Now, if the righteous had owed money, what that meant was that they were the ones that were honorable, that they would have paid it back. But Israel sold them for silver instead. The sandals perhaps refer to a custom of giving the sandals as kind of a mortgage or a title transfer. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 7, we see an example of this. It says, at an earlier period in Israel... A man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So when all the moms throw their sandals at their kids, they're giving them property. <laughs> just kidding, that's not what's going on. But that's what it's talking about when it says that you, you sold them for sandals. You, you, you traded people for property. The intrinsic value of a life is not recognized by Israel. That's what God is telling them. 
heartless acts against their own people. Those other Gentile nations, they did it against other people. Israel did it against their own. So it was exceptionally heinous. The legal procedure is being perverted to exploit the poor. It says trampling on the heads of the poor and obstructing the path of the needy. This goes on today. The people that are in power. I was, I was reading today that there's an article, and I don't care where you fall on which side of this. I'm not going to say whether it's right or wrong. But the Senate had to go and ask for the public records for the financial transactions for Fauci even though they're supposed to be publicly made available for anybody. But they had to be a person on the Senate that filed the appeal for it, paid the legal fees and all that. It should be available for it, but our country has changed that so that us regular people, we can't get access to this. We're not special enough. And that's what the Lord is condemning Israel for. They don't have to be special, be treated righteously. But they were trampling the heads of the poor and obstructing the path of the needy. Father and sons having the same loose relationships. And this is probably in regards to their idolatry, the temple worship with the prostitutes that were there. And it was just a disregard for the Lord and his name. Now, God's law also specifically forbid the use of certain items as collateral. Millstones, you could not take someone's millstone as collateral because then how would they tread the grain? How would they feed themselves? The cloak of the poor was not to be kept overnight. Widow's garments could not be taken at all. We see this in Exodus. It says, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak and collateral, return it to him before sunset. It's his only covering. It's the clothing for his body. What will he sleep in? And if he cries out to me, I will listen because I am gracious. In Deuteronomy 24.10, When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not enter his house to collect what he offers as security. Stand outside while the man you are making the loan to brings security out to you. If he is a poor man, do not sleep with the garment he's given as security. Be sure to return it to him at sunset. Then he will sleep in it and bless you. And this will be counted as righteousness to you before the Lord your God inferring the opposite. If you do this, it will be counted as unrighteousness. In Deuteronomy 24, 17, do not deny justice to a resident alien, a fatherless child, and do not take a widow's garment as security. Yet here they were, laying on the garments down at the altar that they had taken as collateral. It's, it's kind of like going and worshiping God in their sin. Instead of announcing just their punishment, God chose to do something else. He heightened their guilt by contrasting their unfaithful and sinful violation and acts against the covenant based upon his gracious acts. Their exodus from Egypt. He says, didn't I bring you out of Egypt? I led you in the wilderness for 40 years. I gave you the land of the Amorites. I raised up prophets. I gave you Nazarites. In spite of all these things, this is what you did. You took the prophets and you said, quit giving me God's word. Stop speaking. Then you took the Nazarites and you drove them to drink wine, though you knew it was prohibited for them to do it. So he says, I will crush you in your place under the weight 
and escape will fail. The swift, the strong, the warrior, the archer, the one riding the horse, even the courageous will turn tail and flee. That is how great I am coming against you. Probably look at that and you're like, those are all ancient civilizations. How does that even apply to today? I think there's some important truths that we can gather from this, and I think there's some things that God wants us to know and to hold on to that remain true to this day. Those six Gentile nations shows us that God cares how people are treated. Especially how nations as a whole treat people. And God sees what the nations did and he judged them accordingly and he still sees today and has, he will still yet judge accordingly. As you look out at world news, what we get is we see impressions of evil leaders, we see dictators, harsh regimes, we see the, the communist countries and the way they treat their people and we cry out and I want you to know that God sees that. They are not going to get away with it. As God judged them here, he will judge them again. He's still on his throne. God has not gotten off the throne. Nobody's been able to take him off of it. And so he will punish evildoers in his good and perfect time. Remember this. God controls the rise and fall of nations, leaders, and their empires. He will judge, and his judgments are always just. Now, Judah, hearing their judgment come from the same formula as the Gentiles, they're probably going, wait a minute, we're not pagan. We're not like them. We worship you, God. It's true. Judah had its temple full of worship, idolatrous worship. They rejected the truth of God's word for the lie of idolatry, and they were led astray. You see, the Gentiles, they sinned against conscience. They sinned against brotherhood. They sinned against humanity. Judah rejected the laws of God given by Moses. A great responsibility that they had to bear. And here, here's how I want to tie it to today. I heard someone say once, I don't know why you preach about the sins of the Christians, church member said to the pastor. After all, the sins of the Christians are different from the sins of the unsaved people. Yeah, replied the pastor, they're worse because they know better. With knowledge of God, with knowledge of the holy, with knowledge of God's word comes a greater responsibility. And we need to remember that. Amos has revealed the sins and he's announced what God would do to the Gentile nations, to the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. The lion has roared, right? As we consider these judgments, we would be remiss if we didn't ask ourselves, do we truly feel, fear the Lord? Do we seek to obey his word? Do we care about his will? We cannot walk with God if none of these things are true. We can't rely on peace and prosperity to tell us that God is pleased with us because I can tell you that for a very long time, God has not been pleased with America. 
But America is such a machine that peace and prosperity continue, but we see it crumbling. We've seen it crack, right? God is showing us that we are not as all-powerful as we think we are here in this country. It could just be that God is showing us his goodness and his kindness because it says it's his goodness and kindness that leads us to repentance. And so if we want to walk with God, we have to follow his word. We have to go where it leads us. My brothers and sisters, I would tell you, do not wait for the Lord to roar. Listen to his voice now as we get it from the word. Hebrews 10.30 says, For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. May we make sure that that doesn't happen to us. It won't happen because we're better than anybody else. It'll only happen if we heed the voice of God. And if we've listening to God's voice, maybe we are hearing the lion's roar. Maybe as a nation, if we would hear the lion's roar, we would remember the promises of Scripture also. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, God says, If my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. That is a promise from God. And it reigns just as true as when it was first written down. That's for nations. Maybe we could be the catalyst that sparks a revival for our nation. But it needs to start in our own hearts. Have we taken care of the sin in our heart? We have the promise from Scripture that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to close in prayer. The worship team is going to sing one final song. And if that's you, we're going to put up on the screen for those watching on the live stream, you can submit your prayer request. And if that's you, I want you to let us know. I want you to know how you can find salvation today. And it's by calling out on the name of Jesus Christ, saying, that is me. I feel the Lord speaking to me and I know I'm not right with God but I want to be right with God. And the way that happens is you come to Jesus and you ask him to forgive you of the sins. As God is revealing in your heart how far you are from him or, or what you need to do to come to him, you come to Jesus and you say, that's me, I need forgiveness. Forgive me of my sins. And the Bible teaches that all who call upon the name of Christ shall be saved. And that as many as receive Christ, to them he gives the right to be children of God. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for that promise. We thank you for that salvation that you provided. Lord, you are a just and righteous God, and we know that you will judge. And many of us, Lord, we know that, and, and, and the knowledge of that judgment coming, Lord, is terrifying. But Father, right now in this time where we're at, you have offered, instead of judgment, mercy and grace and it's found only at the cross of Jesus Christ Lord I pray you move now through your spirit 
that you would touch hearts, that you would speak to people, that you would advance your kingdom, Father God, and that you would lead them to the foot of the cross to find forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.